Welcome to the C Word Podcast. I'm your host, Beck Hughes. This is where creative meets business. Here we explore what it takes to harness your creative gifts and turn them into a thriving business. You can have a brand and business that allow you to create work that feels amazing to call yours, have clients you love serving, and live a life that feels like the only place you want to be. This episode of The C Word comes with a graphic awesomeness warning. My guest is just one of those people who is so captivating to listen to and has a rare depth of knowledge, which she shares so generously. Christine Corcoran is a business mindset master coach, speaker, podcast host, and creator of the Thrive Retreat and Elevated program. And holy what's it, does she bring the goods when it comes to mindset? We cover so much valuable ground in this podcast, and I know you're going to want to start rewiring your neural pathways the moment you've listened to it. Epic is a word that gets bandied about a lot, but this guest interview is just that, to be honest. Christine is a qualified practitioner in master neurolinguistic programming, matrix therapies, and an M-braining practitioner. I don't know what that is, but it sounds impressive. She's also a hypnotherapy practitioner and leadership coach, and boy, does it show? Although I think we probably just scratched the surface in this episode. We get into what mindset is and why it requires work and dedication to change it. Separating the value you create as a designer from your worthiness as an awesome human. The impact of mindset on your pricing, why it causes you to undercharge and to perhaps wrestle with communicating your value the role of mindset in sales and selling, and strategies for effective sales calls and conversations. We get into the concept of identity upgrade and how it links to your belief systems. So pencils sharpened and at the ready, because this is a pot of gold. Hi, Christine, and welcome to the SeaWorld Podcast, my darling. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So excited for our conversation today. I know it's going to be a great one. I love how you share mindset and the way you talk about mindset. You make it very accessible, but you also go pretty deep into the subject. So I know there's going to be lots of great conversation. But first, before we get into that, nobody is immune from the C word hot seat. <laughs> this is a test for your mindset. Love it. Bring it. <laughs> If you're ready, I'm going to just fire two things at you and you need to choose. Now, there are some rules to this. Okay. <laughs> the rules have developed over time because there's some cheats out there. <laughs> you can't choose both. Okay. You can't defer the question back to the <laughs> interviewer. <laughs> and so you can't make up your own answer that isn't on the list. <laughs> okay. All right. Go for it. <laughs> that's fair so let's start first and foremost podcast or playlist podcast winning sweet or savory sweet every time oh, <laughs> it was so easy that it just came to you like you didn't even have to think about it I have a chocolate that, addiction do you <laughs> all right well the next question that always comes when you, we start talking about chocolate is dark or milk Look, I know milk is really good for you and it tastes fine, but milk every way. 
I'm like, I eat dark when I'm trying to be good health-wise. Yeah. And then I eat like the milk when I'm, you know, emotional and, and on my period. <laughs> <laughs> my, so I'm a real dark chocolate lover, but everyone in my household up until now, he's like super Cadbury. They love the milk chocolate. And my son is 11 now and he's just realized that he loves dark chocolate. He's acquired this taste for it. So now I've got to share my <laughs> dark That's chocolate terrible. with him. I'm not sure how I feel terrible. about it. Get him the chili one and see if he likes that. <laughs> Yeah, maybe that's something I should do. Okay, sand or city? Sand. You're in the right place for that. Mm-hmm. Mosh pit or theatre? Oh, that's hard. Probably mosh pit. Full experience. When was the last time you were in the mosh? Oh, probably cut off before COVID. A few years ago. I know. That's changed everything, isn't it? I used to like. I used to be in Sydney. I used to love going to the Metro Theatre in Sydney, and just I would just get tickets for anything, even if I yeah. hadn't heard of the band. But yeah, well, I went to Hamilton recently. It was amazing in the theatre. Like that was amazing, so fun. But I do love concerts and being in the mosh for sure. Yeah, I almost feel like Hamilton's a bit of a mixture of the two. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, it was next level. Yeah, comedy or horror? Comedy. <laughs> horror is not good for your mindset, and I will talk about that if you want me to. I got let's because I watch a fair bit of horror <laughs> true crime horror it's literally not good for your nervous system are you serious oh my goodness we this might have to be a separate podcast yeah. I do watch a lot of true crime like an unusual amount potentially yeah, and do you experience anxiety and do you sleep well I do you know what that's such a good question and I would say that probably not I start to worry about oh I might get up and like check the doors again and it definitely puts little thoughts in my head for sure because your brain doesn't know the difference between real and imaginary and true crime is both right true crime is actually real stuff that happens to real people and so your brain's trying to determine are we in danger right now so it can activate your fear response and if it's a consistent thing your brain is literally trying to process all that information and sometimes true crime and all horror even is left unresolved, right? So it's like things like cold cases or uh, people have gone missing and things that there's no answers to it. And so your brain is always wanting to find answers in every question you ask it. So it will either give you a bad answer, which makes you feel worse, or it will find resolution. Now, if there is no resolution to that true crime, your brain is going to be on that loop, that thought loop until it tries to find a solution. So it's activating your fear response in your body on a regular basis, trying to answer that question because it feels like you're in danger. Oh my God, I'm exposing myself to trauma. I do not watch any form of horror. I am really conscious of even like heavy drama because it can activate that within your body and your brain doesn't know the difference. If you're like, I, if I watch horror or anything crazy drama, that's like thriller, things like that, I really struggle to sleep well so glad I asked this question because Mm. I watch a lot of true crime and I also love anything zombie like zombie apocalypse but because my husband and I are watching um the last of us at the moment which is very very good it's good on a lot of levels because it also has such a interesting compelling human element to it whereas a lot of zombie tends to be just a little bit more sort of like shock um, yeah shock horror Sometimes it can be depending on if you're, if you can compartmentalize it to the fact of like, oh, that will never happen. 
like your brain can make sense of that. So it can be like, well, that's actually, I'm not in danger because that like there are no zombies in the world. Like it's not going to happen. Right. Like that in the way that your brain will function and, and process that in a good way. Whereas if it's too close to home, like I think that sometimes it can put a lot of uncertainty and cause you to feel anxious because your brain is trying to determine whether you're in danger or not. So interesting. I mean, even with watching that, I can only watch one episode at a time. So I'm like, I need a break. I can't go through right. that that level of anxiety. Yeah. yeah. And life is hard enough. Like why go and put more stuff on your trying to process and cause your brain to go into overwhelm or go into fight or flight when you don't need to. That's why I'm like always, if I ever wind down with TV, it's through comedy. Like I just want to keep it light and just go to sleep and sleep well. <laughs> I'm so going to put this to the test. I'm going to have a like true crime horror amnesty for a few weeks and see if I. See yeah, if I don't. I'm going to do me, it and I'll let, let you know. know. Okay. This is a good one. Monday or Friday? I mean, Friday, every day of the week. Um, <laughs> Obvious. But in saying that, I don't, I don't put so much weight on Monday for it to be a negative thing anyway. So it's kind of mute now that I work for myself, but I do enjoy a Friday afternoon drink with friends. So yeah. Okay. Late nights or early mornings? Late nights for sure. Oh, yeah. interesting. I'm not a morning person, never really been. Uh, <laughs> and I was just literally saying this a moment ago because we're recording this on International Women's Day and there's, there's breakfasts. And they start at 6.30 a.m. Like, no, thanks. You do not want to meet me at 6.30 in the morning. Like, I am not a friendly person at 6.30 pre-coffee. <laughs> I know. Breakfast, I don't think I've ever been to a breakfast event ever. Yeah, I know. I went to a couple and regretted it. I even spoke at one and regretted it so much because I was like, this is not the best version of me. <laughs> <laughs> this is not my hour. Okay. And the last one, run or meditation? I want to choose both. You can make me choose one. I, I mean, literally they're both in my repertoire to support my mindset. I ha they have one, they're both important. I'm sorry. I allow it, Christine. <laughs> <laughs> you're allowed one. Maybe that should be another rule I'm going to add as a result of this is that you're allowed to have one veto. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was a really hard one. Cause I'm like, I do both and they both have different benefits. All right. Well, well I, I choose different depending on how I'm feeling. So if I need to like process some emotion and then need to, need to do that physically, I will run. But if I'm like wanting to set my day up really well and use it for visualization and meditate for mindfulness, then I will meditate. Well, look, full disclosure, my answer would have been neither. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So thank you for humoring me. I feel like I got to know you a lot better then. My and pleasure. I learned something about myself, which is stop watching horror. Yeah. <laughs> my big takeaway so when I introduced you I think it is fair to say that mindset in business is your jam to to put all of that into a nutshell so I'm excited to talk about that today I do feel like mindset as a concept got a bit of a life of its own it skyrocketed in some ways and I feel like that's been in maybe the last three or four years that it's really come to the fore as something that's super important I would definitely say that 15 years ago, and I worked in a design studio, no one was talking to me about my mindset. Mm. And I kind of wish they had been, but you know, mm. it's good now that it's becoming so much more of an important conversation. But I just wanted to kick things off by starting with a bit of a 101 and getting your perspective on what is mindset and why is it so important in every way, I suppose, in life and in business. 
Well, I even think like seven years ago, like I used to be in corporate seven years ago and it wasn't even a concept that they were willing to teach in order to support someone's growth or even to utilize in order for business success, which blows my mind. Like when I introduced it and started talking about understanding the mindset and utilizing certain mindset techniques, they were just like, why would we need to? It's not as important as strategy. And then I started implementing it with the women that I was working with in business, saw great results. And then they were like, oh, maybe we should consider this. And I'm like, yeah, it's the biggest missing piece, right? So I guess like, I kind of want to clarify the difference between mindfulness and mindset because there is a difference. And so the mindset work that I do is about understanding why we do what we do and understanding that your mindset can be the difference between you taking action and not taking action. Okay. So when we explore our mindset, we're trying to unpack how we're limiting ourselves. We're trying to understand our fears and we're trying to understand our behaviors. And all of that comes back to our mindset. Whereas mindfulness is certain tools that we use in order to support feeling better, right? So it's a mindfulness practice, which actually helps the support of our mindset, but it's different, like meditating, um, using movement, uh, journaling, all that type of stuff is really good to support your mindset, but it's not mindset work, if that makes sense. Because it, it can really get very does. confusing. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's such an important dis- distinction, isn't it? Because I think very often... When people talk about mindset, they go straight to the tools. Oh, well, I meditate and I journal. Mm. And those are important tools. But in my very limited knowledge of mindset, I think what you talk about, which is getting to the bottom of why those limiting beliefs exist in the first place, before you even start then using the tools. And of course, the tools might help you get to the bottom of that too. Because the thing is, if you're only doing 10 minutes of meditation or journaling a day, but then the rest of the day, your mind is unchecked it's like a toddler. Like you're literally letting a toddler just run around the room and do whatever. Like that's, that's why, because the rest of your mindset is impacting your actions on a daily basis. So that 10 minutes of meditation, even though it supports feeling better and having clarity of mind, it's not going to change your belief systems, right? It's not going to change your behaviors because if you don't unpack the root cause of what's causing those behaviors, which is what the mindset work is, then you will continue to self-sabotage. You will continue to hold yourself back. You'll continue to listen to the thought patterns that your brain is telling you and believe that that's who you are rather than actually utilizing your mindset to reach your fullest potential. Yeah. When you start to think about mindset, you think, oh, well, look, we're all all grownups. We should all be in control of our thoughts. And why is this even a thing? And I think that's so important to me is why is mindset such a challenge? Why is it so ingrained and why is it so hard to change? Because it's deeply ingrained in our programming. So if you think about your mind, your subconscious mind, like a computer program, like a hard drive, it has stored every life experience you've ever had, every belief system that you've adopted from those experiences from, you know, you've taken on from your parents. It stores your values, all of your memories, your education, your culture, your religion, like all of that, your schooling, like everything that everyone has ever told you about who you are as a person, you've developed these identity beliefs and your subconscious mind likes to run like a program. And it's literally just running a program that is the most way, the best way to get to a certain outcome that is certainty. So to clarify this uh, and try not to get too deep too quick, but basically your subconscious mind is running a program like your computer is running a program. And the way that it preserves energy and keeps you alive is to run the same programs day in and day out. 
And often, you know, when I work with women, they're like in their ages of like in their 30s, in their 40s, because it's usually we've gotten to that point and we've built up a whole bank of evidence to prove why we can and can't do certain things. And then that impacts how we take action on how we see ourselves. So we've got to make sure that we're conscious of that because our programming is what's dictating our thought patterns and what is dictating our actions and our feelings. Yeah. So I suppose our mind is in some ways taking the path of least resistance and kind of going, well, that's familiar. I know that. I'm going to just reach for that. Yeah. So the brain's way of preserving that energy is literally storing patterns, patterns of behavior, patterns of thought that get to a certain outcome and that becomes autopilot. And so you have like 60 to 80,000 thoughts a day. And a lot of those, 80% of those are thoughts you had yesterday. They're reprogrammed thoughts that you just continue to think, which then create an outcome, which for your brain is certainty, which feels safe. But if it's not serving you and you get to the end of the day and you're like, why did I do that? Or why didn't I do this? It's because of those thought patterns. So we've got to start to explore that and, and bring it to the awareness, bring it to the desktop and go, hang on a minute. Is this a program that I want to be running? Is this an autopilot that's actually serving me? Because if I am procrastinating or doubting myself, if I'm, you know, avoiding certain things, that keeps me safe to a certain extent, but I'm still not happy with the results that I'm creating, then we've got to unpack why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. And I think you just touched on something there, which from my perspective is so important in mindset is awareness. Because so much of mindset, you know, that I have found in the past is that you do stuff on autopilot and it's only, as you say, afterwards you go, oh, I do that again. Or I decided at the start of today, I wasn't going to do that. Or I was going to do that thing as well, because there's the not doing. And then you, the outcome is that you still didn't change anything because you then just relax into that. I'll do the easiest thing, path of least resistance. So and your brain wants to do that. Yeah. So it's very convincing. <laughs> And that's the thing is that it's an unreliable source because if you're looking for the evidence to prove that you can do something and it's not in your past, then your brain is not going to serve you to take the action that is the least resistance, right? It's not going to give you the path that feels uncomfortable. It's not going to give you the path that is scary because that's dangerous to your brain. That's death. So when we're stepping outside of our comfort zone, like that is when we're literally creating new belief systems, when we're doing things we've never done before. And that's scary. That's going to take courage to move through that. And that's courage to bring awareness to those thoughts and deciding, well, I'm not going to believe that anymore. I'm going to create new evidence and do new things to develop a new level of identity. So like all the work that I do is literally uncovering what your current identity is determining what part of those belief systems and that identity beliefs are serving you and then working through removing the belief systems that aren't serving you and replacing them with, with belief systems that are going to serve you in the future. Because it can be the difference between I believe in myself and I'm going to, even though it's going to be hard, I'm going to have the courage to do this because I've done all of these things in the past that were uncomfortable and I can do this again to the point of like, oh, this is scary and uncomfortable and I'm not going to do anything yeah. or I can't do this. It's not who I am. Right. Like there's a, that's the difference. And it's literally from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset. The first step is recognizing it when it, ha in the moment when it happens, I suppose, when that thought comes up, if you can grab hold of it, then you can respond maybe differently. You can recognize yeah. it happening. Yeah. And I think that's absolutely the first place, but often people, like you said, we don't recognize it in the moment. So bringing awareness to it is sometimes after the fact of like, Hey, that this morning when I was chatting to a potential client and I decided in the moment to undercharge why did I do that? Like, why was I, 
why did I give up on myself or why did I not trust that she would she could pay what I wanted to charge why did I do that so actually taking the time to unpack that behavior what was the thought that you had in that moment of like oh maybe she can't afford it and like so there was a fear around rejection there and so then like it caused me to then actually undersell myself and then I kind of played small and I thought I offered what I thought that she would be able to afford and then later down the track you feel terrible because you didn't actually own what you're worth and then you took on a client that maybe you know was not the right fit because she didn't see the value in what you deliver and then that creates that cycle of consistently undercharging because you've only got evidence from the past of people paying a certain amount so taking the time to actually unpack those old behaviors to explore well why did I think that what else could I think instead so the next time that happens what thought could I have or what's a different way that I could address that to overcome that in the, in the new situation? Oh my goodness, Christine, I feel like there's going to be designers out there all either holding their head in their hands going, I recognize that scenario. <laughs> well, I or, want, you know, everyone does it like you're not alone. It's not just designers. It's everyone across the majority of women that I work with in business all have a hesitation around undercharging or they also are trying to go to that next level and they know they need to increase their prices, but they're hesitating on that as well. And that's also because of the evidence from the past. You've got proof of what people have paid you in the past. And so it can often be so connected to our self-worth and that causes a lot of self-doubt because we, you know, so I think there's like, I could go into a whole spiel about that, but it's like, there's so much connected to money as well. Like it's not just the mindset piece, it's your belief systems around money and what you think and people can and can't afford and what it means for you to actually charge what you're worth and how to determine worthiness separate to the value that you deliver. That's a completely separate argument. And also thinking about your customer and you know, being mindful that you're not basing your prices based on your customer, because if you do that, you will always be left wanting more because majority of people don't know your value the way that you know your value. So you've got to believe in it first before anybody else will. There is so much I want to talk about there. So much. Like, <laughs> <laughs> hold the phone. <laughs> Whoa. So first thing you mentioned, and maybe this is too big a topic to unpack, but you touched on worthiness being something different and separate to the value that you offer or the value that you create. 100%. Just talk to me about that for a sec, because I feel that is so interesting. And I think there's a, there is a really important distinction there. Yeah. So often I do talk a lot about charging what you're worth. Now, when I say that, I mean that you need to determine what your pricing is and what you feel is worthy of your time and energy, effort and, expert, and expertise, right? Because that's what's going to create sustainability in your business. If you are undercharging, you're not charging what you're worth, you'll quickly become resentful you quickly hate your job and end up going and finding another job because you don't feel like you're getting paid or appreciated for what you do, right? So that's the first piece. Secondary to that is your worth is not determined based on your pricing. You are an individual, amazing human being that is kind and compassionate and courageous and all these other amazing things. And you were born worthy. Worthiness is not an external thing. No one else determines your worthiness. And it's important that you decide that you are worthy right here and right now. Like this is where the decision has to start. It has to start within you determining that your worthiness is your decision. We don't look at a beautiful baby boy that's just been born or a baby girl that's just been born and think, mm, I don't know if you're really worthy to have everything that you want. I don't really think you're worthy to charge what you want to charge when you eventually grow up and have this expertise. 
I don't really know if you're going to be worthy to get the love that you really want to desire. You really desire. Like we don't do that. We go, we want the world for you. You're an amazing, you are one, the odds of you even being born <laughs> are crazy. And yet what happens is in our years of life, we build up conditioning to unworthiness because society likes to teach us that to feel unworthy because that works really well for control, for sales, for marketing and advertising. So when you feel unworthy or not good enough is another way to put it, put it, we want to improve that. We want to feel worthy. We want to feel good enough. So we go and we wear the clothes, we buy the car, we buy the house, we make the family, the 2.5 kids, like we buy the, in the suburb that we really want to buy in order to feel worthy. We do all the things, right? So we're outsourcing our worthiness based on society's conditioning, whereas we need to actually come back into believing that we are worthy no matter what. It's got nothing to do with anything external. And so when you believe that and you disconnect yourself, your self-worth from your business, we need to look at your business with, as a separate entity and look at the value that you deliver based on your offer as a separate thing to you as a person, right? People are buying an offer based on what you deliver, your expertise, and they are buying either for to solve a problem they're experiencing or to meet a desire that they want. So if you can actually determine and communicate that value based on their experience, not your expertise, you're more likely to be able to disconnect that self-worth to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it really does. And I think worthiness, because I think a lot gets, I see it a lot, this term charge your worth. And I think that's become a very catch-all term and it's become a perhaps a little bit of a gray area and a bit mm. of a woolly area because charging your worth is almost impossible to define you, you yeah what you charge is based on a lot of things but it's based on a lot of quite practical things and it's also influenced again by your money mindset but mm. your des how deserving you are as a human is got nothing to do nothing with to do. that nothing to do with it at all and I think that, that yeah it can be very convoluted the conversation around it because there is that mismatch of what's going on there and I think that you know it's got to be both the part of both of it. it needs to be part of the conversation because you need to feel like you can receive and you need to feel that you can charge what you want to charge based on what feels good for you because if you don't you will end up resenting it and hating your work but on the same side you need to obviously deliver on what you're going to deliver on and I think that often what can happen is that we compare ourselves to other people and we get stuck going, oh, I'm going to set this pricing because this is what the market is doing. I want to stay competitive. Stop being competitive. Stop trying to be competitive because you are trying to attach your worth to what other people charge and you do not know how they're setting their pricing. That's not how you should be determining your pricing because you do not know what their overheads are. You do not know what their uh, intentions are with their business. They could be just wanting to do it as a little hobby two days a week. Like they might not have bills to cover. They may not have kids to provide for. Like you have no idea what's going on behind the scenes of how they've determined their pricing. So please don't do it that way. Determine it based on your expenses, by you, what you need to charge, what feels really good for you. And that's one, what's actually going to be sustainable long-term for your business. Because I don't want you three years down the track beating yourself against a brick wall because you are undercharging and you end up feeling like it's just not worth doing business anymore. So you give up on your dream and you end up going back to a job because your pricing wasn't right. Like I've had a client come to me um, earlier this year and this, this situation was literally happening where she was like, 
this is just not worth it. Like, I'm just going to go find a job. And I was like, you could, but what if we sorted these problems out? Like, what if you actually charged properly, got clients that were actually aligned that you loved working with and you're making good money? Like, wouldn't that solve the problems, right? And she was like, yeah, but I don't know. And I was like, yeah, because it's so, in, there's so much that goes into it. And like, we had to work on her people-pleasing tendencies because that was causing a lot of um, over-delivering and over-servicing. So she was giving so much but the value exchange was so off that I was like, no, why no wonder I'm, I would be exhausted list, listening to this. Like, <laughs> right. So it's like, there's so much that goes into the pricing thing that I think that we don't consider. And we just, you know, either based our worth on it or we go, oh, it's easy for me to do. So I shouldn't charge much. Whereas people are paying you because they can't do it. They literally need your expertise. They need your eye for detail. They need your creative flair that they literally do not have. And you are so unique, especially designers that are so unique in the way that they do things that that's that beautiful sweet spot that people are desiring, right? And I think that if you undercharge, one, people can judge the fact that, oh, it's not really going to be very good if you undercharge. But two, if you are undercharging, you're undervaluing yourself, and then people don't value you and don't actually appreciate you. And so if you're having clients that are coming to you, and I know I keep coming back to undercharging, but it's a big problem. If you're having clients that aren't delivering on the work that they need to do in order for you to do a good job, if they're not paying their invoices on time, not showing up on time, not doing the work, they're literally going against your non-negotiables, then you need to look at your pricing because it's often you're attracting a lower level client that really is required based on your values and based on your standards of business. Yeah. Look, you've talked about a lot of things there, comparing yourself to others, people pleasing, you know, having that sense of your work's not quite good enough. You know, there's so much wrapped up in that. I see a lot of designers really struggling to communicate their value. So to get past some of those things like, well, I shouldn't charge too much or, you know, I shouldn't set boundaries around my pricing or what I offer. Are they some of the main reasons why designers struggle to communicate their worth or what perhaps are some of the main reasons? I think some of the main reasons are they spend too much time in their own shoes and not in their client's shoes, right? So when it comes to communicating your value, it's never, or there's elements to it that is you because obviously you need to unpack your uniqueness and what you bring to the table and how you're different to other designers. So getting really clear on those key pieces but a lot of the time it's actually getting in the shoes of your dream client. So what do they value? What's important to them? Uh, what's going on for them? How is the problem showing up for them? How do they see the value in what it is that you do? Because often in their words, in the way that they describe how you solve the problem for them or help you help them meet the desire. So like when I think about branding in general, like I think about it is literally the feeling that you're trying to create for your customers. And if that's off, what happens? You get stuck with clients you don't want to work with. You end up hating your job. <laughs> uh, you may have to, you know, you can't charge what you really want to charge because you're not actually communicating the value. Like it's a visual representation of your value. Uh, like for me, I look at my branding. I love my branding. And then I look at how my, my, my website, I can hate my website. Like <laughs> it needs redoing. I'm in the process of redoing it, but it's like. Loads of people now send you their portfolios. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But when I look for a designer, I look for that uniqueness of like how they're presenting their work and how they're so involved in their clients' customer stories and how they extract all of that 
Now there is such value in that and you can see the difference between average designers to amazing designers and how they do that. So I think it's like get out of your own head, get into your customer's head and start to actually describe the problem that they're experiencing with the lack of what you do, right? Because if you're able to describe that so extremely well and attach it to priorities for them, that's where the value comes into play, right? Because if you're like asking a customer of like, well, why do you want to change your branding? Or maybe they're doing a branding update. Why is that? What's what's causing you to want to do that? And they're like, oh, because it really doesn't feel like it represents me anymore. Don't stop there. Go to that next level and ask them, okay, so then how is that impacting your business? Because they know and they will tell you because I'm not attracting my dream clients. I feel like I'm not really representing myself and I'm putting myself out there. That's impacting my ability to show up. It's impacting my ability to present myself the way that I would want to present myself. It's impacting me able to get speaking gigs, me able to, you know, like it could be so many other things that's going to be individual to the client at the time. But often what happens is that when we find out that information, we just stop there instead of going to that next level. Now, if you've never asked your clients these questions, you may be like, oh my God, I'm so surface level. Start going a bit deeper. You need to attach it to a priority that's important to them. Otherwise they don't see the value in making the change. Yeah, I think so much of value and it's something I talk about a lot is attached to how inquisitive you are. And inquisitive isn't a trait that you have to either have or not have. Being inquisitive is something that you can, you know, consciously do Mm. just to ask questions. I think very often for any industry, but designers is one of them, you feel like you need to have the answers. So Mm. when a client comes to you and they say, well, I'm not happy with my website, it's this feeling like you should intuitively know why it's not working and be able to go, here's the solution then. No, ask. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> it, there's, there's real power and there's real strategy. And I think you elevate yourself so much when you actually ask what are sometimes the quite obvious questions, but very often a client will go, oh yeah, I've never actually thought about that. Yeah. yeah. So like, it's so fascinating because often what happens and what causes that hesitation in that scenario is if they're on a sales call, they are having a mindset issue going on about sales. So they're worried about being too pushy, too sleazy, too salesy. They're worried about asking too many questions and seeming like they don't know what they're talking about when actually that's how you show your expertise. Like when you ask that question, you consider the impact that it's having for them. Like to have a branding expert actually say to me, how do you see that your branding is impacting your ability to get speaking gigs? Like you can see on my website that I do a lot of speaking. It's all on my socials. It would be one of the biggest drivers for me, right? How do you see it's impacting your ability to get new clients? It seems like a direct question, but asked with a beautiful soft tone, the client goes, they make the connection because they don't know necessarily that that's the connection. But when you highlight it, they go, oh my God, yes, I could literally be improving this, making it look like I am amazing and then be landing thousands and thousands of dollars worth of speaking gigs. That's where the value connects, right? And it's going to be different for every client. So it's important that you do your work and do your homework and look at, okay, what do you think that their priorities would be? And ask that question, explore it. And it's about, yes, inquisitive is such a beautiful way to go about it. I like to think about like curiosity, same thing. And it's about detaching the outcome in that sales call. Because if you are so focused on, I've got to get this client, I hope they say yes, I hope they don't say no, like you're so focused on the wrong things that are causing you to actually not focus on what's important for the client. If you're showing your passion around the fact that you get it for them, 
that's when they're like, oh my God, yes, she's the designer for me. Yeah. Oh, Christine, there is so much value in what you said. I just want to pull out a few things because it's easy for you. It doesn't make it easy for everyone else. And, you know, because you might be able to intuitively as a designer, see in your head immediately what that design solution should be. It doesn't mean that others can do that. That's the value that they want to pay you for. And that's such an important reminder. I think, Mm. I think consciously we sort of know that this is my skill, but perhaps we don't attach as much value to that skill as we should. To give you a different example, I had a conversation with a copywriter. Uh, so obviously redo my website, redo my copy and had a conversation with her and she ran a great sales call. I was so impressed. I was like, this is amazing. Yep, you're my girl. And it was because she was like, uh, she had done her homework. She looked at my website. She was interested in what did I do? She actually shared her passion for working with coaches. And one of the first things she did is like, So what is one of the biggest challenges with your copy? And I was like, I actually don't know if I'm getting across what I actually do and how I'm different. And she's like, amazing. And then she highlighted to me, she's like, did you know that with your, like your website copy that you've got there is pretty good so far. Um, Did you realize that on your homepage, you don't actually communicate the fact that you're a business coach? What? She was like, yeah. And I was like, oh my God. So, so terrible. Like you've got to be able to think about your uniqueness and what you bring to the table and then think about how you can ask a question that highlights that for a customer. Because that for me was her attention to detail, was her ability to understand I needed to be able to communicate my uniqueness and that she could already see how I wasn't doing that. I was like, oh my God. Yep. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) But she was asking questions rather than telling, which I think is such a great way to get you to that place yeah which is the perfect in every situation because nobody likes to be told what to do so if you ever (laughs) so if you can turn everything back into a question they're more likely to actually come to their own conclusions their own solutions and highlight that as a priority for themselves a sales call for instance is never about you and so if you are spending 90 percent of that call presenting what you do you've missed the whole point It's not about you. It's about your customer and them coming to the self-realization that they need you. Yeah. Yes. Which is absolutely to that, to another point that you made, which is put yourself in your client's shoes. I think Mm. that's something that is not something that comes naturally. You know, I Mm. see lots of designers talking about, this is how you design. This is where you go and find nice images. This is where you go and find nice fonts. And that's not what their client wants to know. (laughs) Their client wants to know how they're going to get more clients, elevate their image, communicate their message clearly, get more speaking gigs. Yeah. And how your service is the solution to that. Yes. So such an important takeaway there. Third takeaway, be inquisitive, ask questions, love what you said about detaching from the outcome. I think that's Mm. so important. And I think that links to the idea that you mentioned of, you know, this sales call is not for you. It's for your client. It's what you're going to give to them as the Mm. outcome. They're amazing outtakes. I think it's one of those things that we can build up so much, so many stories around a conversation that could lead to a possible sale. Because if you are attaching your worth to it, you're attaching, you know, your everything to that call. Like if you've got that desperate energy of like, oh my God, please let them sign up. You're focused on the wrong thing. You're focused on you. You need to be focused on them first and really being okay with sitting in the uncomfortability of the conversation. 
So I was helping another client through this recently, actually one of the girls that's in my elevated program, we're talking about dealing with objections and how like, cause it's all attached to money mindset. So I have this money mindset program that I take women through and she's at the stage where she was having conversations, uh, sales conversations. And she was, when the objections showed up, she ran, she would literally finish up the call, didn't know how to handle the objection and basically would run the opposite direction. Um, and I was saying to her, like, I need you to be in your client's shoes how uncomfortable it is for them to talk about this stuff because she helps in a really um, personal area of life. And I was like, you need to remember what it's like to be in their shoes because if they've never worked on this before, it's extremely uncomfortable. And if they've, and one of her customer traits was that they really struggled to put themselves first. So investing in something for themselves is a big part of their objection. And so I was saying to her that you need to sit in that uncomfortability with them to guide them, to support them in their decision. And if you make it mean anything about money, about you, about, you know, your bottom line, you're missing the point because if you have the service or the product that is going to give them a solution and solve the problem they're experiencing, it is your obligation to support them in their decision. And so she's been practicing that this week and she literally signed four clients in 24 hours. I was just like, you're on fire. Yeah. She was like, I just, she's like, I have been missing out on so much because I wasn't willing to actually have a conversation about the objection. She would just run. And now she's willing to sit there with the client and agree like, yes, it is uncomfortable to invest in yourself. And it is uncomfortable to think about putting yourself first, but let's talk about it. What would that look like? How can you see yourself doing that? What is something that you've done before in the past that's similar to this? Like allowing them to actually see because she knows she has the solution, right? And she's delivered that solution. She's got great customer testimonials and she believes in her offer, right? Which is the first piece. And the second piece is being willing to detach yourself from the outcome and really sit there with your client and help and guide them. And part of it's trial and error, isn't it? What could you change? What could you do differently? But also addressing some of those things that you've so beautifully articulated, which is detached from the outcome, put yourself in your client's shoes, ask questions and just be interested. Mm. Can quite clearly by that example, make such a huge difference. Mm. And I think too, like we wear so many hats in business that I think that we have such high expectations on ourselves to be good at every part of it, that we're not willing to actually be in the beginner shoes and trial and error and play around with it and perfect it and master it. And I think sales is one of those things that if you've never been taught sales, you can't expect yourself to be amazing at sales right from the beginning of your business, right? It takes a lot of trial and error and actually learning the process. It is a process. If you've never learned it, you can't expect yourself to be amazing at it straight away. So like, I think it's one of those things that this is why, like, you know, obviously I've years of experience in sales and I teach it now. So it's something that I think that can cause so much angst and so much worry and concern that but it's one of the biggest things that can impact your results in business. So it is something that you definitely need to learn and getting comfortable with it is a process in itself. It is practicing it. It's changing things. It's adapting to the client. It's being able to really communicate your value as well. Right. And so yeah. it's a whole mix of different things in a process that I think people judge themselves too harshly for without actually giving themselves the space to go, oh, hang on a minute. I've never learned this. I've got to learn it. It's the same with marketing. Like how many business owners get into business and then think that they should be great at marketing? Like marketing is a whole other bloody skill. So yeah. <laughs> give yourself a break. Yeah. Maybe part of it is that we just need to redefine what sales is. Mm. <laughs> You've kind of defined it there with the 
asking questions, detaching from the outcome. Whereas I think sales has got this, you know, narrative around it, which is I've got to communicate my pricing, say what they can have from me, close the sale in inverted yeah. commas. Yeah, I want to have that hungry kind of feel to it. Yeah, where actually I think it's like dating or like a conversation, like giving yourself the opportunity to get to know the customer. And it's about like giving them the space to actually have that conversation to uncover how their problem is showing up for them in their in their world or how the desire is actually the lack of the desire is not there and they really need it. So it's being really able to sit in that conversation and let it be a beautiful conversation without that expectation that it has to be a hard sell, like let go of that. And I think it's also you finding out whether you want to work with them too, right? So yeah. some of the part of the process that I teach is actually understanding what your non-negotiables are right? Because often what happens in the early stages of business, you just take on anyone, right? You go, people are going to pay me. I'm going to take their money, right? You just start and you just work with anyone. And then you slowly, but surely determine, oh, hang on a minute. They're not a really good fit. I'd rather work with people who are more action focused. I'd rather work with people who are really proactive with this key piece or whatever it might be. And so you should get to the point where you are clear on who you don't work with and who you do work with. And knowing what your non-negotiables are on that sales call, there should be a couple of questions that actually determine whether they can meet those non-negotiables. Nice. I like mm. that. I do like the idea that it is a little bit of a two-way street. Mm. Yeah. And like okay. that first good period of time should be your client talking more than you are. One thing I have enjoyed you talking about and heard you talking about is the identity upgrade. So I wanted to touch on that with you because I love the concept and I just wanted to invite you to talk to me about that a bit. What is it? Why do we need to do it? How do we do it? So without the mindset work, we are every day living from the past. So we are waking up each morning, reminding ourselves what happened yesterday. We're checking back in with the world to see how we feel, right? We're reactive, Majority of the time, we're literally reacting to scenarios in our life and we are running the program from the past. So we're running all of our same belief systems, our same fears, all of that, all of our values, who we think we are based on our identity with our family, with our friends, like all of that is dictating how we show up in our world today. When we start to think about having an identity upgrade, we let go of the past. We stop focusing on the past and go, who do I want to be? So what do I want to have? What's the experience that I want to live? What results do I want to have in my business? Who do I need to be in order to have those results? And then we start developing a belief system that is that person, that new identity. So we're, we're always evolving and we're always upgrading, but it's that intentionality around it of like, okay, so I'm currently experiencing these results in my business and these results in my life. I don't want those results anymore. I want these results. This is my future vision for what I want to step into. Who do I need to be in order to have that being a foregone conclusion? Fit and healthy people, like they are actively believing that they're a fit and healthy person, right? So they have the belief system that they prioritize their health. It's something that they value. They hold it dear and they believe that it's part of who they are, right? So then the foregone conclusion is that is they work out, they eat healthy and they take care of themselves, right? Yeah, exactly. So if you're thinking about that next level vision for your business and where you, how you want to take it to that next level and the person that you would need to be in order to do that, it's like, well, who is that person being and who have they got around them? What decisions are they making on a daily basis? What do they value? What do they believe about themselves? 
What do they believe about their service? And how do we actually start to adopt those belief systems now, which then will actually impact adopting the action steps as well and the behaviors, which then the outcome is the result of having that business. It feels like the crux of it in many ways, doesn't it? Because how you, if you see yourself as not producing valuable work, or as if you see yourself as being an order taker, for example, or you know, if you see yourself as someone who doesn't charge much, or even if you see yourself as someone who is a really great service provider and really looks after the client and says yes to everything, and that's become a positive image for you. And then, it's not. About, it's not about the money. I just love what I do. Oh my goodness! When I hear that, it, it, you can be both. <laughs> yes. It needs to be a little bit about the money because you need to survive. You need to eat. You need to pay your bills and your mortgage. Like it needs to be a little bit about the money. So can you please stop saying that? (laughs) Yeah. Self-identity is so important, isn't it? And how you see yourself as a person who is X or Y and how that then defines what you do, your actions. Mm, 100%. So like my first call with a client is literally uncovering their current identity. And usually they will so openly tell me what's going on for them. And I can see what the actual belief systems is they're holding onto that causes them to act in a certain way. Right. And so first things first is like, there's no blame there. There's no judgment there. It's literally just, okay. So with all of your life experience, we've developed these belief systems. We've made this scenario mean this about ourselves. And so we've got this list of belief systems of all of our, about who we are. And so I usually spend a good period of time just uncovering that. And then as we go, more and more come out. And then it's like, okay, we need to determine, are we going to hold on to that belief system? Or are we going to let go of it? And we need to actually go through certain processes to shift those belief systems and rewire those neural pathways and change your brain chemistry. So then you can actually start to believe in yourself, believe in the new identity beliefs, and then you start taking action. And then that builds evidence of who you're being. Right. So like to use the health analogy again, like if you're working out on a regular basis, you've got evidence to prove that you're a person who works out on a regular basis. Yeah. Right. You're a person that shows up in their business consistently. You have evidence to prove that. And so you believe that you're a consistent person in business. So it's all works in itself. And I think that you've got to work through shifting the old stuff, but then also replacing it with the new stuff. It's actually about going into the subconscious mind and shifting those belief systems at the core and that's not done through talking, right? It's not just about chatting about it. We've got to actually make the physical change. So it's a physical change. So I guess what you're saying there is part of mindset is something you can't necessarily consciously change. You can, but it takes a lot of time and repetition. Right. Right. So basically what happens, right, is we have these little pathways in our brain. And the way that I describe it is almost like a, like a branch of a tree, right? So every year a tree develops extra bark and that trunk gets thicker and thicker. Sorry, I shouldn't say branch. A trunk gets thicker and thicker as it grows, right? So every time you have a thought and you repeat that thought, you're adding an extra layer of bark, right? So it's getting thicker and thicker and that trunk is very, very strong in its in its stoicness and its belief system about that thought right so the more you repeat it the stronger it becomes now if we go in and actually I can actually go through a process where we actually almost like get an axe and chop that tree so that that belief pattern is gone whereas if we were to do that on our own the way to go about it is not to actually chop that tree chunk down is actually to start developing a new branch And so we continue to repeat that thought pattern, repeat that thought pattern. And you can use that through affirmations, mantras, things like that. 
uh, hypnosis and create this new branch. So then the old branch starts to wither away. The old trunk starts to wither away. And then the new one is the new pathway that we start following. So it just takes a lot more repetition to do on your own. It's doable. And I think we've also then got to sort of poke holes in the old belief system as well to get rid of it. So we no longer believe it. So sometimes it can happen quite instantly in the way we like shift our belief system, because like, you know, there's people in the world that used to think that the flat, the earth was flat until there was enough evidence to prove that it's not. And so now we don't believe that, but because it's on to, honestly like an internal process, sometimes we need to actually repeat the belief system so many times. That's why mantras do work, but it has to be consistent and repetitive on a regular basis in order to create that new belief system. And then you've got to follow it with action to embed it even more, right? Because you can be like, I'm happy, I'm happy, I'm happy. But that doesn't determine anything until you actually go out and do something that shows you that, oh, hang on, maybe I am happy. <laughs> now I've got evidence to suggest yeah, that. <laughs> right? So it's like, say, say someone believes that they're a perfectionist. That just didn't come out of nowhere. I either had someone told them that they were a perfectionist or they followed perfectionist tendencies and then identified that, oh, this is a perfectionist tendency. And so I now determine myself as a perfectionist. But if I poked holes in that belief system and actually found out that it, you're not really a perfectionist, you have per perfectionist tendencies and with specific things, you're actually not a perfectionist at all. So it starts for the brain to go, oh, hang on a minute, what do I believe? And so it's got these two opposite, opposite belief systems of like, well, I'm a perfectionist here, but I'm not here. So that, what does that mean about me? And then if we start to de develop a new belief system of, actually, I'm not a perfectionist, that I get to choose where I want to spend time and focus on detail in certain areas that are important to me, that becomes a new belief system. Does that make sense? I know it's a, oh, it it's really is of education. So it's hard for me to bring it down into one little thing. <laughs> it, that's a very good analogy to illustrate it, I have to say. I mean, we have literally, we've covered so much. We've covered like biology, sales calls, mindset, <laughs> undercharging, <horror> movies, <laughs> trauma, all of it. All we've are. covered a lot. Are there any things that you can perhaps do quite quickly to start to support your mindset? Or maybe the mindfulness is the better word to use there, giving your definition at the beginning. Obviously, there's a lot of deep work and consistent work to be done around mindset. But are there some, I hesitate to use the word quick wins, but are there some things that people can go, I can do these few things starting today and it will make a difference? So I think that any form of mindfulness practice is healthy because we need to give us our brain space to actually process all the information. So making sure that you do have some form of mindfulness practice in your, in your daily repertoire. So that could be meditation, movement, uh, journaling. It could be, um, you know, dancing it out for five minutes. It could be going for a walk, but not having no, not listening to an audio book or true crime or um, music, like actually just giving your brain space to yeah. process everything you've already asked it to process throughout the day. So giving yourself space. I think that's really important. And I think the biggest thing or the first step, I guess, would just to start to become aware of your thoughts and behaviors and start to notice what patterns are starting to show up. So the more awareness that you have it for it, the easier it is to change because you can't change something you're not aware of. So starting to become aware of it and then start to just poke holes in that belief system. So question it. So if you keep telling yourself that you're a perfectionist, for instance, start questioning it. Is that true? Like, how do I know? Can I know for a hundred percent of the time I am, I am a perfectionist because if it's not serving you, 
right? We want to identify that. If, if it's not serving you, then we want to actually start to acknowledge what could be serving you better. And so we, we go through that process of awareness, identify what it is that you'd like to change and start to just bring in a little bit of that difference. You know, once a week, do something different in a scenario, right? Start to I, just I, identify any other evidence in the world that could possibly prove that belief to be not true. And I think that sometimes even finding um, role models start to uh, adopt other uh, action steps that might serve you in the long run, because sometimes it's actually just the more you move through fear and take the action anyway. I mean, that's the quickest way to change your belief system. If you are consistently doing something that you never used to do, you become to believe that that's someone you, who you are now, right? So it's in that moving through fear and taking the action anyway. But yeah, the awareness piece, I think is everything. And I think that uh, doing the thought work and actually taking the time to go, hang on a minute, I didn't do what I really wanted to do at that point. What was the thought that I had about that? And how can I change that? You're very motivating to listen to, Christine, I have to say, because I'm listening to you going, yeah, I want to go away and do all of these things. <laughs> Thank you. And it, it honestly is, I hope that that's the case because your mindset can shift everything. It can, it's everything. It's the, literally the difference between you enjoying your day and hating your day. Yeah. Because what you make everything mean is everything because your brain will continue to follow new patterns that you give it. So if you are focused on everything that's going wrong in your business, your brain will keep showing you more of what's going wrong. Whereas if you are reframing that and going, oh, hang on a minute, that didn't go necessarily wrong, but what did work in that scenario? Or what can I change that to of like, rather than, oh, my God, I suck at that. You could change it to, well, I'm learning and it's okay to suck until you get better at it and you've got to practice right? Learning to change your inner talk to, to impact how you feel. That can be the difference between you walking away at the end of the day and go, wow, what an amazing day I just had compared to why am I even doing this? I'm over this. I just want to go get a job, <laughs> right? Like yeah. it can be the biggest difference yeah. too. And that's why I'm so passionate about it because so many women give up on their businesses because of some small, simple tweaks that they could make, which change everything because their mindset is lacking or they've got stuck in certain patterns that aren't serving them. Okay, you have shared so much. I'm not sure there can be anything left at this point. But just as a final, is there anything, any final words of wisdom that you would like to share? Anything we didn't touch on that you're like, I must say that. Becky, don't watch any more horror movies. No? <laughs> <laughs> you are the creator of your own reality. So make sure that you're choosing something that is empowering and you're choosing what you want to feel. Often what can happen is that we believe that our emotions control us and it's not the truth. You get to choose how you want to feel and choice is everything. If you bring more choice to your life, more choice to your mindset, you're more likely to feel happier and more fulfilled. It's when we close off our options and we think that we don't have a choice, that's where things can go south. So reminding yourself that you get to change every single day. You have the choice to change. You have the choice to adapt. You have the choice to change the way that you talk to yourself Every part of life is choice. And so bring back more choice and remind yourself that you are the creator of your own reality and what you focus on, you'll get more of. So be conscious of that. Amazing. I love that. I love that so, so much. That was the perfect, perfect point to end on. Thank you so much, Christine. I have, I have been entranced by this conversation. It has been so great. Thank you so much for everything that you've shared. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for the great questions. It makes such an easier way to answer when the questions are amazing. Oh, thank you for being here, my love. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me, Beck Hughes, on the C Word podcast. If you like what you heard, subscribe, 
leave a review and share with your friends and business buddies who might like to listen in too. The music for this podcast is by Red Productions on Pixabay.